Well, you get me again. Sister Brenda already said she'd take care of it with Lewis to make sure that y'all don't have to hear me two times in one day. No, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> All right. Um, turn into your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 3. The book of Judges, chapter 3. <clears throat> think, if you were to think about the profile of a leader, what would we think about? We would think about somebody who's strong, and especially if you were thinking about somebody who's going to lead you into war, right? Like somebody who's strong, somebody who's a warrior, somebody who's honest, somebody who <clears throat> um, wouldn't do, wouldn't ask his guys to do anything that he hadn't done. Um, a hard worker, smart, a tactician, all these different attributes that we would want a leader to have, uh, especially if he was going to lead us into war. But the Bible, it's interesting that the Bible has a different spin on who some of the greatest leaders in the Bible were, especially here in the book of Judges, where as I've been studying the book of Judges just on my own and preparing for these, and then uh, the Lord blessed me to be able to take a class at school right now on the book of Judges and Ruth, and just seeing how some of the judges for all intents and purposes, not to, to be rude or ugly, as uh, Southern moms like to say that word ugly. I've, I've really adopted that word because I think it's funny. But th these, these leaders are, are nobodies. They're guys that you would say, that guy's going to lead guys into combat. He's going to lead war. He's going to, he's going to save a people. <clears throat> but then there's other guys in the book of Judges who... You think, oh yeah, those are the leaders. Those are the warriors. Those are the guys that would be able to lead guys out of combat. And they're the worst ones of them all. They're the ones that have the most written about them because the lesson to learn is don't be like them. <clears throat> Whereas these guys in chapter 3, almost a full chapter from verse 7 to 31, and it covers three of the judges. And it's because these judges, for all intents and purposes, uh, weren't... The worst of the worst, but they weren't what everybody would have thought would have been a military leader. And, you know, when I was in the Marine Corps, I had a I had a leader once and I thought, man, how is this guy going to lead us anywhere? Like, I don't know about this guy. Like, I don't have a good feeling about this. But then when it came down to it and uh, stuff started popping off and when things were getting real and it wasn't training anymore, we all looked to him and he did it carried us and he just I mean it was perfect still to this day one of the guys that I look up to the most in the Marine Corps was was him and he was he was just phenomenal and if I was half the leader he was I was I was good um, but at first I was just like oh my gosh this guy you know I don't know so I want to, I want to, I'll read the passage. I'm going to read from, I know, so the last couple times that we've been in Judges, we talked about the people doing what's right in their own eyes. That was one sermon. And then the next sermon we talked about, we talked about how compromise can lead you down a really bad road and it can cause you to be disobedient. And then we talked about the other view and this kind of the second intro of Judges where disobedience was really prevalent and it really did lead the people down the, to the wrong road. Ultimately, that these people are now living and dwelling with the people that they were supposed to push out and get rid of. Um, and so <clears throat> last time we did cover part of this passage. I, I did read about 
the, the judge Othniel and how he came on scene and rescued the people. But I did that just to say that God had a plan for redemption. Right now, I'm going to reread that with the other two, and we're going to talk through kind of their profiles. So join me in Judges chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 7. We'll read till the end. <clears throat> and the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and forgot the Lord their God, and served Balaam in the groves. The groves is another name for the Astaroth, uh, and the, the, Aster, the Astaroth, uh, which is Balaam's like consort of sort, right? Like girlfriend or whatever. She's the god of fertility and all that kind of stuff. So they're serving Balaam and his mistress, consort, whatever you want to call it. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. He sold them into the hand of Cushon Rithiatham. And that name, Cushon Rithiatham, that second name, Rithiatham, means double in the Hebrew language. So this guy, his name literally means double evil, double trouble. Okay, so turn them over to this king, this double evil king of Mesopotamia, and the children of Israel served Cushan Rishiatham eight years. Or, yeah, eight years. And when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel who delivered them, even Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel and went out to war, and the Lord delivered Cushan Rishiatham king of Mesopotamia into his hands and his hand prevailed against Cushan Rishiatham and the land had rest for 40 years and Othniel the son of Kenaz died. So what do we see here in the beginning? We see the same, same old, same old in the book of Judges, right? The people are right back to the vicious cycle. The people rebel. There's retribution. God gets angry at them and turns them over to the, to the evil king. Uh, they, then the people cry out and they repent. Hey, Lord, we've been sinning against you. We need help. This is uncomfortable. We're sorry. We've learned our lesson. And then God provides a rescuer, right? <clears throat> so they, they rebel. There's retribution. They repent. And then God provides a, a, a rescuer, a savior, a redeemer. And it just so happened that this time in this section, it was Othniel. You guys remember Othniel from chapter 1. Caleb had said, hey, whoever goes and defeats these people, I'll give my daughter to this person. Othniel goes. He does that. He takes Akash, Akash to marry, and then they go off and they do their thing, and he's off the scene until right now. But the Lord raised him up. The Lord raised him up. And so, so in this little section, we see some things. The first thing we see is that there's an older generation that forgot about God. And the word forgot here is the word sakah in the, in the Hebrew. And the reason why I point that out is because they didn't have like a mental lapse where they literally did not remember who the Lord was. They forgot him because they, they didn't, they ignored him. They didn't consider him. They didn't think about him. They didn't put him into their, into their sights to say, what would God think if I did A, B, C, or D? If I went and lived with the people he told me to take out, if I went and, uh, worshiped these false gods and, and became enamored with their way of life, which by the way, their way of life was a sexually perverse way of life because she was the god of fertility. So not only now are they living with the people, worshiping their gods, but they're being sexually immoral. I mean, there's just all, it's just rampant debauchery. That's, that's just the easiest way to put it. Okay. So they forgot about God and they chased after Balaam. They chased after the Ashroth. So what does that mean? They became disciples of those false gods. They turned in the real God and they became disciples of these false gods. 
So that was number one. So we see an older generation that forgot about God. They, they, they didn't consider him. The second thing that we see is that there was, there was this older generation that got disciplined by God. We see that in verse 8. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, and they served him for eight years. So God says, okay, you want to turn your backs on me? You're going to forget about me? You're going to pursue other things and, and do the things that I told you exactly what not to do? Go live in captivity, and you can hang out with this guy for eight years. So for eight years, zero spiritual growth, zero spirituality whatsoever. They're just being heathens with this king whose name literally means double evil, right? And so they have nothing. And so we know that God disciplines his children. He disciplines those whom he loves. That's in Hebrews chapter 12. And so it was right for God to discipline these people. If he wouldn't have disciplined them, how much love does that show that God really has for his people? Zero. That, that's what it means. And so then the third thing that we see here in this Othniel story is that there's an older generation that cries out to God. So they repent to God. And when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel who delivered them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. So God raises up Othniel, and then Othniel has this detailed description about where he is and who he is and where he comes from. Guys, Othniel is not even an Israelite. Othniel is not a natural-born Israelite. He is a implant. He is a proselyte. He converted to to become an Israelite. And I'm gonna I'm gonna spoil it for you. The guy at the end of the story, Shamgar, he's also not an Israelite. So in verse 31, the guy is so awesome that he only gets one verse in the Bible. But he saves God's people, and we'll talk about it. But he is also not an Israelite, so keep that in your mind, because why would God pick a non-Israelite to save the Israelites, right? <laughs> and so, <clears throat> but God raises up this man, this nobody, this guy who, for all, all intents and purposes, he goes and he just... He, he, he wins this battle in the beginning of the book. He gets the wife and he goes off to do his thing and start a family and do his thing. And after that, we don't even hear about him. And now all of a sudden God raises him up. And then in verse 10, we see that the spirit of the Lord came upon him. God enabled this guy to go to war and deliver them from the king double evil, the double evil king, Cushan Rishathaim. And Mesopotamia, y'all, back then, that was that they were the big dogs. This isn't a joke. It's not like this is a little army and this isn't going to be hard to do. God takes this non-Israelite, this guy that nobody would suspect, gives him his spirit, and sends him on a mission, and he goes and does it for the Lord. <clears throat> and then at the end, we see this. Othniel is this younger generation, so it's a younger generation gives them hope in God. And how do we know that? Look in verse 11. And the land had rest for 40 years, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So they had rest for 40 years. And as I was reading and doing my study on that, I wondered what that meant, rest. Like, did they just take a nap for 40 years? Did they hang out in the shade for 40 years? No. They had rest for 40 years because they weren't at war and they weren't living underneath the oppression of another people because they were keeping the covenants, following the commands, remembering God who delivered them from Egypt, trusting in his promises and looking forward to inheriting the land. They were doing what they were supposed to be doing. They were focusing on what they were supposed to be focusing on. And it was all God. 
and how good God was to them. They remembered that for 40 years. Now, you would think and I would think that at the end of that, like the, it, it, the Bible should read on and just say, and the people kept living in peace and everything was great and there was rainbows everywhere and nobody did anything wrong. They learned their lesson and they were obedient children. Amen. Story over. No. Look what happens in verse 12. So let's read again, and we'll read about Ehud from 12 to 30. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, uh, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered unto him the children of Ammon and Amalek, and went and smote Israel and possessed the city of palm trees. That's Jericho, the city of palm trees. So the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. But the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. The Lord raised them up a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, a man left-handed. And by him the children of Israel sent a present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. But Ehud made a dagger which had two edges, a cubit length, that's 18 inches, and he did gird it under his raiment upon his right thigh. And he brought the present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. And Eglon was a very fat man. And when he had made an end <clears throat> to offer the present, he sent away the people that bear the present. But he himself turned again, this is Ehud, turned again from the quarries that were by Gilgal and said, I have a secret errand unto thee, O king, who said, the king says, keep silence. And all that stood by him, they went out from him. And Ehud came unto him and was sitting in a summer parlor, which he had for himself alone. And he had said, I have a message from God unto thee. And he arose out of his seat. King Eglon stood up out of his seat. And Eglon, I'm sorry, and Ehud put forth his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the haft also went in after the blade, and the fat closed upon the blade so that he could not draw the dagger out of his belly, and the dirt came out. In some translation it says, and the dung came out. It basically, he was killed and he, he lost control of his bowels. Then Ehud went forth <clears throat> through the porch, shut the doors of the parlor upon him, and locked them. When he was gone out, his servants came, and when they saw that, behold, the doors of the parlor were locked, they said, surely he covereth his feet in his summer chamber. And they tarried till they were ashamed. And behold, he opened the doors of the parlor. Therefore, they took a key and opened them. And behold, their Lord was fallen down dead on the earth. And he had escaped while they tarried and passed beyond the quarries and escaped into Syriath. I'm going to stop there. So this is a lot, right? That's a big old story. So basically God raises up this guy. He's left-handed from the tribe of Benjamin. What does the word Benjamin mean? I'm glad you asked. It means son of my right hand. So God raises up this left-handed warrior from the right-handed tribe, right? And he says, you're going to, I'm going to, this is the guy. You're going to go and you're going to do your things. Me personally, y'all, I think Ehud is a warrior. Like Ehud's the guy that I would want to go to war with. And I think maybe quite possibly that this guy is like a biblical Navy SEAL. Okay. Cause he, I mean, he's going behind enemy lines and he's going to make stuff happen. He builds this 18 inch sword, 
right? Let's just call it a prison shank because that's probably what it was pretty close to. It's 18 inches. There's no hilt. So if you hold the handle, there's no T right here to, you know, it's just one long sharp piece. He puts it on his right thigh. Why? Because he's left-handed. Because he's left-handed. So if you're left-handed, you draw with your left hand from your right side. But what, what would the people, when he would go to go to security, right, to get checked before he went to go see the king, they would be checking his left side. Because everybody was right-handed. Also, they know this guy's from the tribe of Benjamin, son of the right hand, right? They wouldn't have even looked. Now, that's some inference, maybe, possibly, but... I read about 25 commentaries on this just to see if everybody was in the same boat, and they were. This is a very agreed-upon thing that when he made it to where the king was at, that they wouldn't have even thought about looking on that side because they would have thought he was right-handed. Then he goes in there. Oh, let me stop right there real quick because I almost forgot the, one of the most important parts. The name Eglon, it means bull or calf. That's what his name means. And then if we let me see here. Okay, yeah, verse 17, and at the, at the end it says Eglon was a very fat man. So this guy is literally a fat cow. That, that's that's what it's, that his name just means fat cow. Well, his name means cow, but he's a fat cow. <clears throat> so then the Lord, so he goes in there and he says, hey, I have something from you from the Lord. Well, Eglon stands up because, not because he's like, give me the word from the Lord. He thinks he has a present from for him from the Lord. Well, there is a present coming. He just doesn't want it. And Eglon takes out this two-sided sword and he runs him through. And the reason why the sword is able to go all the way in is partly because he's a fat guy. But the other part is there's no hilt. There's nothing to stop it. And it goes all the way in. And so what was the message from Ehad to Eglon? Your services are no longer needed. You will no longer rule over the people. You are dead. Right. Hey, this is the Bible. This is this is the Bible telling a story of a guy who gets empowered by God to go and enact to go out and act on his behalf and kill this man. I love it. Why do I love it? Probably because I'm a Marine and I think things like that are cool. I think warfare, there's there's a certain thing about warfare that makes makes it exciting for me. But I also think to myself, the Lord raised up the right guy with the right kind of skills to do the task that nobody else could do. He literally kills this guy while he's up on the roof in his, they call it a summer home here in the, or uh, uh, I'm sorry, um, a summer parlor here in the King James. Other versions call it a cooling place. Well, then after he kills him, he loses control of his bowels. The reason why I'm bringing that up is not to be gross and crass, but to remind you, after he does that, the Bible verses that follow that, that read in that, when the, <laughs> when the Hebrews will read this, it will be a joke to them. It would read something along the lines of, he stabbed him and the dung came out and then Ehud slipped his way out. Right? So it would be like a rhyme and a play on words like, Ehud went in there and killed that fool and he took off and he was gone. And, oh, by the way, when he left, Ehud leaves by the bathroom. He leaves through the toilet and sneaks out and goes. This dude is amazing. He is awesome. Like, I just, man, that's just, he's awesome. So where else do we see a two-edged sword? And I want to bring this up because I think it's very relevant. We see a two-edged sword in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Let's go there, and then we're going to go to Revelation after that. 
we're going to go to we're going to look at some of the uses for a double-edged sword. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and is a discerner or a judge of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God's word cuts us open and reveals what's in our hearts. It judges our hearts so that we can see it and we can make adjustments. That's part of God's word being good for teaching us, God's word being good to rebuke us and reproof us, and God's word being good to correct us. And then go to Hebrew, I'm sorry, Revelations 19, Revelation 19.15. Ooh, I just made a big mistake. Don't tell my teachers I did that. I put an S at Revelation. Man, I hate it when I do that. Revelation 19.15. This is talking about Jesus. And out of his mouth, Jesus' mouth, goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and of the wrath of Almighty God. Hebrews 4.12, Revelation 19.15, Judges chapter 3. All of those double-edged swords pass judgment. And they will pass, you know, that, that's judgment. And so Ehud judges uh, Eglon by way of your services are no longer needed. I have a gift from, I have a word from you from God. Stab. Game over. <clears throat> and so after Ehud does that and he slips out, he goes on and he goes and he starts to rally the troops. He starts to get them ready for war. And it says in verse 27, and it came to pass when he was come that he blew a trumpet in the mountain of Ephraim and the children of Israel went with him from the mount and he, bef and he before them. And he said unto them, follow after me for the Lord hath delivered your enemies, the Moabites into your hand. And they went down after him and took the fords of Jordan toward the Moab and suffered not a man to pass over. Now, again, I like Ehud in this story because he's a tactically minded guy, right? He's a left-handed guy. He's a nobody kind of sort of because like he's a weird guy, like left-handed. I, I remember once I had a platoon. We were uh, 38 guys, 38 Marines in our platoon, and I had 27 lefties. Blew my mind. I thought, how are we ever going to make it in combat? We're all, you guys are all left-handed. You guys can't do things the right way. You know, I was joking with them, but at the same time, I'm thinking, man, we really do have some problems here. We got 27 left-handed dudes. Now, I did have another Marine who reminded me, Hey, Gunny, you can't really complain because you're a left-handed shooter. And I said, Oh yeah, you're right. And then we went about our business and I told him, don't you ever bring that up again? <laughs> so, he, but he's, he's tactically minded. He goes and he takes the fords. Who knows what a ford is? It's, it's this point in a river where people can cross from one side to the other. And they take those things and they don't allow anybody else to cross. And then they go and they crush. They go and crush Eglon's armies and they win. It says, so Moab, or so, and it says, and they slew Moab at the time, about 10,000 men, all lusty and all men of valor. And there escaped not a man. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest fourscore years. That's 80 years. That's the longest 
period of time in the Israelite history that they had peace, where they were serving God, loving God, worshiping God, considering God, following his commandments, remembering that he rescued them from Egypt, all the things that they should be thinking about. It's the longest peace period in Judges and the Bible. It's the longest period of time in the Bible that there was peace for the Israelites. So then we get to the last verse in this in this thing with these three different men. And it says, And after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, which slew the Philistines 600 men with an ox goad. And he also delivered Israel. So Shamgar is a Hurite. That's his, that's his nationality. He's a Hurite and he's a shepherd. He is not an Israelite. And so um, go to Exodus chapter 12. And I found I got this piece of information from my professor, and it blew my mind because one of the things I asked him was, we got these two guys that aren't Israelites. Where do they come from? Because they had to have come from the land of Canaan then, right? Like, is that how they got there? So go to Exodus chapter 12. Okay, yeah, verse 38. 12, verse 38. And this is when the Israelites are leaving Egypt. And it says, and a mixed multitude went up also with them and flocks and herds and very much cattle, a mixed multitude. Some other translations would explain that. uh, And you would know that a mixed multitude means it wasn't just Israelites that were leaving Egypt. It was mostly Israelites, but there were other people going with them and escaping. And and then they were converting into into Israel to become Jewish by um, by faith. And so that's what Shamgar and Othniel are. Both of these guys are not Israelite by, by birth. And so we see three things here from Shamgar. And it's like, how can you get three things out of one verse? Well, hey, the text is there, right? So number one, Ehud, I'm sorry, Shamgar did what he could. He was a, he was a, he was a, a shepherd tending his flock. And he has an ox goad. An ox goad is a little piece of metal that goes at the end of a stick that you can use to kind of poke your sheep and get them in line to get them to go where you want them to go. Listen, listen to what it says. This guy's awesome too, you guys. He slew 600 men, 600 Philistine men with an ox goad. He did what he could. He wasn't trained for war. He wasn't a warrior guy. He didn't come from a warrior tribe. He came from a tribe of shepherds, a people who just worked with cattle. And the Lord gave him the strength to do what he could. And that was take that little tiny knife at the end of that stick and kill 600 Philistine warriors. 600. And how come he only had a little, that little ox goat? Well, here I'm going to tell you because point number two says Shamgar did what he could with what he had. All he had was that ox goat because guess what? The Israelites are under oppression again, Right? Even though it doesn't say it, that's what's happening. That they, they are under oppression again at the end of that 80 years. They go back to doing what they weren't supposed to do, back to that vicious cycle, and they're under oppression and under captivity. And so the only thing they had was that ox code because they, the, 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 the enemy that was having them probably thought nothing could happen with this ox code. We'll let him have it so he can direct his sheep. But there are no other weapons. There are, you don't, when you're captive, they don't give you a full arsenal at your, at your, disposal. Point number three, and the last point is that Shamgar did what he could with what he had for the glory of God. 
He took that little ox goad with no warrior training and he killed 600 men and he delivered Israel. Why? Because that would give God the glory. Because God would show his power and his sovereignty over when and who and how people would be redeemed. And he would use in this chapter three guys who we would think, whatever, those are just some average dudes in my book. That's not a... That's not a general Schwarzkopf, or that's not a, that's not a chesty puller, or that's not a all the you know any of the warrior greats. That's not a Alexander the Great. That's not um, you know any of these guys that we know from the battlefields that would go out and just utterly march over and destroy people because they were so warrior minded, so physically dominating. God takes these three simple men and He rescues His people with them. And what's the takeaway here? Despite our inabilities, despite our sin. Wait a minute, Robert, how do we know those guys sin? Well, we know they sin because they died. These men died. It says it. Othniel died, Ehud died, and Shamgar dies. They're not perfect. They're not, they're not, uh, they're not beyond the curse of sin. Right, and so he takes these imperfect men, despiteing their sin, despiteing their physical limitations. A left-handed guy in a right-handed world, or you know, a, a lowly nobody who just got married and is trying to raise a family and do what he needs to do, and and he, and he puts them in a place to do his work and his will, and they do it because he empowers them to do it. So for all of us in our weaknesses and in our sin and in our um, inabilities, God can still use us. But for us, it's will we recognize when God is using us or will we just keep doing what we're doing and miss it? And I know we believe in God's sovereignty and, and, and I do too. And, and we, we hold tight to that. But in God's sovereignty, he will use you. And you won't realize it if you're not ready for it. And how do you stay ready? It goes back to those four simple things. You're in the word, you're in prayer, you're at church, and you're in accountability. And you're doing those things daily. And you're doing those things with all your heart, mind, and soul so that you can know when God is using you. Because you'll know it. If you're cultivating your relationship with the Lord, you will know when he's going to use you. Because you'll see it. You'll be, it'll be evident in your life. I know God is using Lewis to train up other men in this church to become pastors. I know it because he's doing it with me. He's doing it with Caleb. He's doing it with Reed. And he's doing it with other people from other places. We have a pastor who, who is, is being used by God on so many levels. And if you pay attention, you'll see it. What is God using you for? What could God use you for? Not if you do something, but if you were aware of God wanting to use us. <clears throat> May we be the people that God could use to rescue lost people from darkness by way of just like what Caleb said, being an example to them and proclaiming excellencies and speaking of 
and bearing testimony of the great things that he's done in our life. May we be a people that would be willing to be used by God and not run from that chance thinking, oh, I'm too weak, I'm too broken. Everything that I've ever done in my life, it's too sinful, it's too disgusting. God will never be able to use me. Well, that's not true. In closing, I would like to point our attention back to Genesis, kind of like what Jesus did right this morning when we talked about that in the road to Emmaus. Think about a guy like Joseph, a guy who was beaten, broken, accused of things that he wasn't, that he didn't do, left to rot in prison, sold into slavery, all of those things. And you would think there's no way God could use a guy like that. He's so pathetic. But God uses him in a mighty, mighty way. He uses him to save his people. God takes the smallest of eight brothers and anoints him as king. Could you imagine being Samuel and showing up to Jesse's house and saying, okay, let me see all your sons. And he brings out all eight of his, or seven of his sons because, you know, David's off tending sheep and he goes through all these big, awesome like blue chip players that, you know, for all intents and purposes, they're the guys that everybody picks first. And he says, nope, none of these will do. Do you have another son? He says, yeah, but it's just a little guy. And he's out in the, he's out in the, in the flocks or he's out in the field with the flocks. And he says, bring him. And here comes little old David, young David, small David. And he says, that's the guy. And then if not the greatest savior of them all, he is the greatest Savior of all. A little boy born of a virgin from the city of Nazareth. Remember in Scripture where that guy goes, what good could come from Nazareth? Isn't that guy, isn't that Joseph's son? As if Joseph wasn't, as if Joseph couldn't produce anything good enough. But God took this humble, perfect Jesus and he saved his people from nothing. You don't have to be the biggest and the baddest. You don't have to have all the street smarts and book smarts and looks and muscles and this and that. God will use you despite yourself. God will use you to do things. Will you be willing to be used by God or will you run from it? That's all. Let me pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for stories, uh, Lord, here in Scripture that show us that you are so mighty and so sovereign that you can use whoever, whenever, however. And Lord, may we be people that would be willing to be used by you. May we not fear what the mission could be, Lord, but would we charge into it knowing that you can empower us to do and accomplish your will and your way. God, we love you and we thank you for your, your saving grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for redemption. Most of all, Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and what we have because of him. And it's in his name that we say all these things. Amen.